on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. There's often a time um, where beauty is considered frivolous in times of panic and upset and the things that people are looking for like safety and regularity and beauty is considered to be like, well, when things are good, let's do the beauty thing. But actually the wisdom is on its head. It's actually the times when we are in the most amount of danger and the times where things are the most uncertain and unpredictable, that is the time for beauty. Why? Because beauty courts spirit. It's what brings life into the space again. I can feel that just even saying it right now, I can feel that as an emotion in my body, you know, something really um, that's almost breaking my heart just in saying it right now. Beauty brings life. Beauty is not just a thing to make money or to be entertained with, but it actually has a function, which is to court life. What does it mean to be a man today? The old ideas of masculinity are dissolving, and the new ones are beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric collapse, how might we look to the old myths and archetypes for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculine. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. We live in wild times. So much has changed since I published my previous episode of this podcast. A global pandemic is now sweeping the world, with country after country imposing severe lockdowns and many people retreating into isolation. In Canada, we are just beginning to feel the impact, and the future is deeply uncertain. Which is why I am honored to share my conversation today with my friend and beauty maker, Day Schildgren. Day calls himself an impermanent earth artist, who has developed quite a following with his practice of morning altars, gorgeous mandalas that he builds through foraging for natural materials in each place that he goes. In fact, I highly recommend pausing this podcast and visiting his Instagram at Morning Altars to see this beauty for yourself. In this episode, we begin with the obvious, speaking about the coronavirus that has now overtaken the public imagination. We explore his own roots as a young Jewish man that was almost killed in a bombing in Israel, before coming out as gay in New York City and claiming his sexuality for the first time. And finally, we make a plea for the willingness to craft beauty in a time of fear, as a way to court life back into the center of the spiral. Enjoy. Day Shieldcrit. Welcome to the show. That's me. Thank you. Can you describe for us where we are right now? Sure. We're in a house um, near the water on an island off of, or near Vancouver in Canada. Mm-hmm. And I'm not Canadian. <laughs> and why are you here? So I'm, I'm, I'm running away <laughs> from my country for a variety of reasons. <laughs> no, and I'm called to be here because... Um, this place is is beautiful and and uh, there's a richness here in the people and in the land. So yeah, and I'm running away from my country. <laughs> and you came to work on your next project. Maybe. Yeah, I'm writing a new book. Mm. Yeah. The topic of the day, though, 
and hopefully won't dominate the entire conversation, is around COVID-19. It's the topic of my waking and sleeping mm. life right now. It's impacting mm-hmm. hugely. Mm-hmm. When you first came, when we greeted each other, you know, you asked me how I was doing with it. And I was saying that I'm, I, I'm ice oscillating between panic and uh, presence. And mm. um, that's a almost an hourly experience. <laughs> Well, we study with a teacher named Stephen Jenkinson, and one thing he said about the nature of true ceremony, I believe, is that it bears a mark of its time. Mm-hmm. And so, there's the part of me that you know, wants to conduct this interview and make it evergreen and, and maybe not talk about just, you know, quote what's happening right now. And yet, that would seem somehow unfaithful to actually that this is the time we're in. Yeah. And so, I wonder for you... What does this moment feel like in terms of this cultural, this cultural swirl? Yeah. <clears throat> it's a swirl. I, yes. Swirl. Yeah. Yesterday I, well, it's funny. I was walking on the beach two days ago and I, I was just in that ebb and flow of, of panic and presence, mm. <laughs> uh, specifically because I just, well, you know, all of my spring tour just got postponed and maybe summer tour got postponed. And so my income is postponed. And, um, and so then I, I came upon out of nowhere, uh, someone took hundreds of rocks on the beach and made a spiral, mm. like a labyrinth spiral. And I came upon it and, um, and I just did the walk myself and had a few breaths in the center and a few kind of words of realignment to myself in the center and then kind of came out of the stupor of, of where I was in my mind and then uh, realigned back to where I was physically, which is beautiful. Mm. And um, I then recognized I need to share that with my audience. And so I did a little... Instagram Mm. video and invited people into that walk with me and asked pretty important questions. Um, But the most potent one to me was the coming from the swirl of the spiral, the outer part of the hurricane, and then coming towards the center. I don't know if you've been in a hurricane before. Mm. Um, I grew up in New York and we had a pretty gnarly one in, I think, 1987, Hurricane Andrew. And trees, huge trees were, were falling on our house at the time. And then one moment, everything just stopped and it was quiet and it was still, and it was just a regular day for like a good eight hours. And we were in the eye Mm. and it was just completely as if nothing was (laughs) happening, as if there wasn't a tree through my house. Mm. (laughs) Um, and so that's what I was doing in the center of that labyrinth in on the beach two days ago. And then yesterday I was posting on my Instagram and, and I just thought to myself, because I also yesterday was just oscillating between the center and the spiral, you know, mm-hmm. the outer and the inner, like really just oscillating between these two things yesterday. And then I just asked myself, what is the, the art that I want to share yesterday the audience what's the altar because i well you'll get into it Mm -hmm. (laughs) i shared a piece of my art and the one that came forward was the it was also a spiral Mm. um made out of leaves and the center of it was a flower 
And um, I looked at that and also got this message again, which is the returning to the center, Hmm. the outer coming in and then the inner going out. And recognizing that that inner space, that center space is available to me all the time. It's a journey to get there. It doesn't mean that I should live there. It doesn't mean that I'm there all of the time, but I can return there. And that there's this uh, exercise or this this uh, um, practice of going out into the world and into the panic and into the worry and into the fear, and then spiraling back in and knowing that I can get there. I've been there many times. I can get there. My art was doing that, and this amazing rock labyrinth was doing that, and um, I got to keep doing that, keep on going. <laughs> Maybe you do too. <laughs> Mm, that's beautiful that you came upon this spiral on the beach, mm-hmm. especially given the work that you do. And, yeah. you know, when I met you years ago now, in, when we were wee lads <laughs> in California, uh, I believe you just started doing this morning altar practice, yeah. which is where maybe you can speak more about it. But um, essentially that, yeah, you, you would go, go for, for walks mm-hmm. uh, with your dog. Your wonderful little dog. Yeah. And that uh, my understanding is it was, wasn't was your focus, but it was just a way of starting your day. That it was, yeah. it was kind of bringing... Well, it's actually a way of, of trying to move through heartbreak. Mm. Um, a year before my dad died and then my uh, partner and I broke up, actually thanks to Stephen Jenkinson. <laughs> well... <laughs> no, but it it uh we went to, I went and studied with him for the first time and I came back and my relationship pretty much splintered uh and and dissolved within 2 weeks mm. of returning from that school yeah. and um so it was truly a casualty of the school and it couldn't bear the weight of what we were learning about mm. and so about for about six months, I was really completely heartbroken and gobsmacked by grief. And uh, it was impacting my work. It was impacting my physical health. It was impacting my social life. It was just impact. I mean, as grief is meant to do and, you know, it's an interrupter and um, things were getting interrupted and I didn't know what to do. And so uh, I had this dog, Rudy, and he, she was my dad's dog before he died. And so I took her under my wing. And so she had needs as we all do (laughs) to go out in the morning. And so we went out for walks and along the way I would find, I was living in Richmond, California and in this amazing place called Wildcat Canyon. And I would find these beautiful, as you do on these walks, right? You know, you find a feather or you find a cluster of elderberries or you find a little beautiful leaf and, and there's something very whimsical that that is ignited in you when you see this, almost childlike. Um, but if your mind is very uh, dominant, if it's if it tops, if your mind tops you, <laughs> then it pulls you away from the natural beauty of the world, mm-hmm. and it pulls you back into your worry and into your doubt and into your um, inner turmoil. But if you can somehow stay uh, tethered to the outer world and to see the beauty that's already there and to actually bring forth from your depths, your childlike wonder mm. to the world and gift that back to the world. Well, then you're in this amazing dialogue that is leading who knows where, right? And so um, it would pull on these walks. I would just get pulled out of my grief for just a little blip of a moment. And then I would just carry on walking. And so one day Rudy and I were walking up into the hills into Wildcat Canyon Park. 
And it was very early in the morning and it was a very beautiful day. And we um, got to the top and underneath this eucalyptus tree were these amazing amber colored mushrooms and they were glistening in the sun. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I did this kind of, when I was a kid, I used to save worms um, and I used to deco- decorate the wormholes with little berries and, and twigs. And so I had, and then I used to do this for my birthday. I used to make art in nature. I mean, I always had this affinity to make beauty outside. Um, and so that day I just sat under that tree with those mushrooms and I had this impetus to, uh, rearrange the mushrooms. Um, I think it was because I was so overwhelmed with the thoughts in my head that I was trying to rearrange the grief internally. And so I was externally doing it. And so it, it wasn't conscious. It wasn't like premeditated, but it seemed like putting things in order. It's kind of like when you're making your bed or cleaning your room or washing the dishes, it's kind of therapeutic. So I was doing that with the mushrooms and rearranging those mushrooms and getting a sense of order. And it was making me feel ordered <laughs> in a very chaotic, grief-soaked experience. And, um, and so I finished about an hour into it and, um, and it felt like a second had gone by and I realized something beautiful. I made something beautiful. I took a photograph of it. It's actually in my book in my first book. And, uh, and I do tell this story cause it was very meaningful and I realized there was something that happened there. And so I, as you know, we tend to do these days made a commitment, <laughs> Could I come back to that spot for 30 days and make another one? And so I did. Every morning, Rudy and I would take a walk and I'd I'd forage things. And that itself alone was medicine for me. Just walking around. It's amazing how simple it could be. You just take a walk with a basket or bag and you just find things. And you're just a kid again. And you get all of the medicine that kids get which is that you're not on this destination addiction where you're trying to get somewhere or get something or, or take something, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a world of wonder and whimsy. And so everything, so that, that somehow splashes a little bit on your face when you do it. So you get a little bit of a refreshed thing happened the other day. I was in a very, with this COVID-19 thing, I was very, very troubled and I'm here by myself in this house writing this book. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm, in self-isolation already. And then the worry and the fear, it's pretty intense. And so I just, you know, did what I do, which is I grabbed a a bag and I went on a walk and it brought me back to life. Hands down brought me back. And, um, I felt myself again. Anyway, long story longer. I, um, I did that for 30 days. I went to that same part of the of the hill in Wildcat Canyon with different things from the basket, and I would just make an impermanent piece of art every day. And it became something that I did not just as art, but as a devotional practice. And so I would make the art, and then I'd devote it to something in my life, or at the time, my grief, or my dad, or my relationship, or my broken heart, or my dog. Or, and then I started to share it. Um, first to my friends and family and people were having a very strong reaction to it. Positive. <laughs> they're, they're, um, you know, in their office, in a cubicle on the computer, suddenly this beautiful nature, symmetrical nature piece would pop up on their phone and it would somehow sneak them back outside. 
and they would feel a little less contained and a little less um, um, pr- a prisoner to the screen. And then I started sharing on Instagram, and the most amazing thing started to happen, which was that this almost like a seed flying in in the air, these altars would just fly to Poland or to Brazil or to Iran. And then someone would see it and their grandmother just died. And they would go out in Iran and collect the things of that place and make something from their hands and their imagination and however it wants to look to them. Maybe it's symmetrical, maybe it's not. Maybe it looks like a, a bird. Maybe it looks like a monster. Maybe it looks like you know a beautiful abstract piece. But whatever it is, they devote it to their grandmother and then they take it, photograph it, and send it to me and tell the story of what that meant to them, the symbolism in the piece, the numbers, the storytelling. It became this mythical exchange through art and image. And uh, the most beautiful thing, the most beautiful aspect of my work, and we'll get to this because this is really related to the COVID-19 stuff, is that it's impermanent. And so every single piece I've ever made, and I've made many, over a thousand, and I love them all. Well, let's say I love most of them. <laughs> I don't love all my children. <laughs> I love most of them. Um, they all are gone. And they're all just captured in, in a brief memory of a photograph. And so the impermanent piece of it, of my art is um, a very, it's very, very challenging. Very challenging. I can't make money off my art for the most part. I can't sell the originals. Um, and it is because of that, it is a crystallized nugget or or what's even a better way of saying a crystallized gem or jewel of wisdom. And it's a teacher. You know, it's hard to actually convey in words what they are, I find, because, you know, just seeing an image, they're just stunning. Like they're beyond, like they're almost impossible. That's how I feel about them. I see them. I'm like, how is that actually possible? Mm, thank you. You know, in terms of the beauty, in terms of like, what, yeah, what feels like a, I don't know, an impossible transmission of wonder. Mm. And play. And play. It's yeah. play. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when I get too serious, um, I usually end up um, either not making it, giving up, or getting very frustrated. And when I can just sit down, it's happened a few days ago. I like one day sat down, got too, way too serious. Oh, I did that before. Oh, I mean, all these voices came up. You did that before. Oh, it's not working again. Oh, that shape. No, 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 that's not, you know, all of these critical voices would come up and, um, and then I just left it. <laughs> I was like, I'm done with this. I guess I'm done. I put out my book and now I'll never be able to do it again. So I left it and I made dinner and the next day I went back out and I was, felt much lighter and I felt much more playful and I sat down and the piece came through in like an hour and it felt fun. It felt playful. I didn't feel attached to an outcome. It was, um, the piece was romantic. It felt like it came from another time, but it felt sassy. It felt all of these things that are me that live in me. But the, the, and the, but they were expression of myself. And when the channels open, they come out. But when the channel's blocked by ideas of myself that I have about either the work or judgments 
of myself, then it's like trying to move through a labyrinth, you know, and the creativity, the spirit of the work can't come out fully. And so, you know, there's a correlation with the words conduct and conduit, you know, so the conduit of how things move through us is impacted by the way that we approach them. And so my approach matters. So how I go and forage matters and the music I'm listening to or the thoughts that are going through in my head or the clothes that I'm wearing. You know, like this morning before we talked, um, I listened to an interview by RuPaul, who is my guru. Because <laughs> he's so fucking wise and so whimsical and so does not care what you think about him. You know, because he, it's to me that whole, and I'm doing the transition for you right now into this conversation, but RuPaul is, you know, I, I mean, I don't particularly love drag, to be honest with you. It's not my jam at all, but RuPaul is my jam because he is, he is really weaving the older threads of, of play and whimsy and connecting them to spirit and connecting them to, I mean, really what he is, is an old time shaman. Um, that is reincarnated as a drag queen. So it's, we'll get to this conversation about masculinity, um, and queer and queerness. But, um, anyway, I listened to him before I came here today because the way that I approach our conversation, I knew that we're having a conversation on masculinity. And so I wanted to talk about, I want, I'm like, who do I want to impact this conversation? How do I want my conduct to be here? And I'm like, oh, I'm going to tap into my, my girl, you know? And so that, so he's here too. So that impacts it. And I think, you know, especially in these times of fear and panic, which I have myself, play is our ally. Play, you know, not getting so twisted on how things are. And I got to hear my, I'm going to listen to this recording. <laughs> It's fascinating, actually, to to bridge these two uh, elements of one impermanence. Yeah. I feel with queerness um, yeah. because it's maybe not as apparent how radical impermanence is. Actually, like to directly, it's make, not apparent. It's it to the listener. It may not be apparent immediately about how radical actually it is mm. to make impermanent earth art, which is yeah. when you describe what you do. Because the times uh, that we're in, and especially uh, even for I'll bridge it to to masculinity and to men is oftentimes things are about making things that last or that stay forever yeah. or that, you know, can be commodified and blah, 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 all that stuff. Yeah. And yet there's something so radically defiant to the way it is to deliberately make beauty yeah. that, you know, is going to dissolve. Yeah. So I'll give you a, I'll give you a really great window into what we're talking about right now. And it's, it's, it's crystallized in the word museum museum. Okay. So the listener, Hey listener. So the listeners know this word. We're all, maybe most of us have been in a museum. Um, I just went to one a few months ago in uh, beacon, New York, Dia, which I went to 15 years before and it looked the same. And I went in and I was so excited to go in there cause it's got some of my favorite artists and it looked the same. And I was like, Oh no, <laughs> I was immediately bored by it. And so this word museum, let's look at the word itself because it tells the story of what we're trying to say here. We're, we're trying to present something in this conversation. The word, it already does it. 
which is the word, how we know it is maybe a building or an organization, a business that houses art. And maybe that organization does everything it can to preserve it, to make it last as long as possible. And so if you've ever been with me in a museum, you know that, and some of you maybe have, you know that I'm the guy that the security guards follow <laughs> because I'm the one that wants to touch it. You know, especially in that museum I went to two months ago, Dia Beacon, I wanted to touch it because it's lights and it's dirt and it's glass and it's this and it's that and it's interesting and it's round and it's square and it's fat and it's thin and it's like, it's, it's life, right? It's like the body, it's the earth, it's all these things that like any kid that was there, they want to just play with it. And so every time I go to that museum and any museum for the most part, the security guard follows me around and says, sir, three feet, please, three feet from that, you know? We don't want you to touch it and we don't want you to dis disturb it and we don't want it to change. We don't want anything to happen. We want to preserve the art for as long as possible, right? Okay, so the word museum, if you hear me talk about it enough right now, you can start to piece apart these two words in it, which is muse and in the word museum. And really, the, the, the second part of the word is referring, of course, to the house, but the first part is referring to the muse or the muses. And so what are, who are they? Who are the muses? And so I was talking about writing a book, right? And I wrote a first book, which if you, if you have put your hand to any kind of writing or any kind of art, anything, you, you know sometimes she comes and sometimes she doesn't. And um, sometimes you can control her and sometimes you can't. This is creativity in general. It's a v and maybe love is like this too. Maybe grief is like this too. But there are certain things in life that they come and go on their own, in their own way. And you can't control them. Maybe you can court them, but you can't really demand them like you can with the electricity where you just flip a switch and it's on. Good art is like that. You can't control it. And so, you know, the last book I wrote, I would do, this is a secret between you and me and everyone listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I would do everything I could. This book, I'm not doing it as much, but the first book I would do everything I could to um, court her. So I would get up and I'd get dressed. I'd light some candles. I would light some incense. You know, I would, I would really try and make this space beautiful. Because I think beauty is a important ingredient into the meal of attraction and courtship. And who was I trying to court? I'm trying to court the words. I'm trying to court the story. I'm trying to court the, the meaning and the beauty and the wisdom for that book, the creativity. And so... Um, she sometimes would come and I'd write this amazing story in the book. And then Ian, there have been times where I would sit at that fucking computer for hours and there'd be a sentence happened yesterday. I had to step away. I was like, I'm not, I am not sitting here with you for hours over one sentence. I, or I'm, I'm, I think skilled enough now to know when she's, when she's close and when she's not even in the neighborhood. 
And when she's not even in the neighborhood, I'm not even trying. Um, when she's close by, I'll, you know, I'll really like uh, send a scent in the air <laughs> and attract her. But anyway, going back to museums, um, the question that we need to ask ourselves is, how did a word that used to mean something so ephemeral, a house of spirit, really is what it's saying. Something ephemeral and fleeting and here and there and everywhere, whimsical, become a house of permanence. How did that happen? And, and also, what are the consequences to the creativity and the art that it's in a house that's trying to prison it and keep it? And so your question around queerness or masculinity even, is the same question, which is gender, and to, and to really, to quote my guru again, because <laughs> I heard him say this, he says, uh, you're born naked and the rest is drag. So gender, hello, is the same thing. All of these things are clothing or costumes. We put them on, we take them off. <clears throat> They're changing all the time. They're fluid all the time, or, or they could be. I mean, you're, hopefully you're not wearing the same clothing you've been wearing for the last month. Every day you're wearing something new. Why? Why not just wear the same thing every single day? Because you have feelings. Today I want to wear this. Tomorrow I want to wear that. This is dirty, so I'm going to put on this. But this today I feel blue, or today I'm going to wear green, or today I'm going to mix it up, and blah, blah, blah. Things are changing all the time. Clothing, it's, it's always changing. That's the beauty of fashion or makeup. You get to try something different. I just finished watching on Netflix the series Glow Up or Next in Fashion. It's all about people changing the way that they look through fashion or makeup, art, creativity. You know, the storytelling, theater. I used to work on Broadway for eight years. That's what we did is we would tell a story and we would change people. I used to I used to be in theater for my childhood and then I worked in on Broadway for 8 years and the reason I loved it is because I got to play different people and I got to feel different feelings, ones that I wouldn't normally feel. And now <laughs> also for your listener um one of my still faithful ways to feel feelings because as a man um it's it's harder even as a queer man, it's still hard to emote. It's so hard to emote just letting the feeling come in and out. <clears throat> so what is one of my faithful tools to emote? Musical theater. I'll drive in my car and I'll put on Les Miserables. And I get to feel another person's feelings through their story. And I get to, and and the way musical theater works is that when you're feeling something, you talk about it. <clears throat> but then if you can't feel it, if the feeling is too big to talk about, you sing about it. And if it's even bigger than singing, you dance about it. And so it's all feeling-based. And so these days when I want to feel feelings and I want to move through them, I just put on a, a musical and it is so, um, I get to, to move through it and change with it. You got to, yeah. Mm. I love this track, actually. It's interesting to perceive how, you know, a lot of cis-gendered men, and cis for the listeners generally means that they were 
they are the gender that they were assigned, or they proceed as if they were the gender that they were assigned. So generally, let's say straight masculinity, straight cis masculinity, that there seems like it's such a narrow band of expression that yeah. that is kind of allowed, and I'm totally guilty of this, that often my willingness to say, um, become art is hampered by, I think like a relationship to clothing maybe is just a purpose or it's just, it's purposeful. Functional. It's functional. It's purposeful. And therefore it feels like what I hear what you're saying that there's like an entire spectrum of relating to, I mean, not just clothing, but also makeup and just expression in general, which feels in some ways like outside the spectrum that is quote, I don't know, either allowed or conditioned out of mm-hmm. men who, um, don't identify or maybe haven't been able to to step outside of that band and i'd love to hear more about how you know what it, why is that like even in your own story growing up being queer how did you differentiate between oh how come these other boys are say they're not willing to express maybe in the way that you wanted to or like how was that for you growing up well um growing up i uh was an orth i at 13 I became religious, um, and and I'm Jewish, so I became a religious Jew, and um, so any so the time before that I was a kid, a kind of suburban, uh, you know, upper middle class kid, just doing that thing. At 13, somehow or other, maybe it was because of the community or the camaraderie or a connection to God. I'm not sure exactly why I did it, but I, I chose out of my family's decision to be religious. And so, hello, drag. I put on a yarmulke. I went to public school. I wore, I covered my head in, with a yarmulke. I wore these things called sit which are these uh, knots, these strings tied 613 times on the four corners of your shirt. Um, so I wore an undergarment with that. And I wore this thing called a talis when I went to synagogue, which is a religious garment, and a lot of other things. <laughs> and I I did that drag for 10 years. And all of the kind of conduct and the tradition that comes with that. And I got totally immersed in it until I was um, around the last year of my college life. I was uh, living in Israel and I almost died in a bus bombing there. And I was supposed to be at a bus stop um, that day and the um, I decided like a college kid to sleep in and the bus stop exploded. And I was only about 20 feet in the, or maybe 30 feet in the dorm room. Um, but I got knocked out of bed and then kind of walked to the bus stop and took it in. And so that year that happened. And then I was directing theater. And then I finished the year by coming out of the closet. And uh, while with coming out of the closet, I took off my uh, Jewish drag and I lost like 20 pounds and I started to experiment with what it means to be in another costume. And so that was coupled with moving back to New York City and I got to experience being a queer, I would say at the time I called myself gay, I was a gay man in New York in 
2001, around the time of 9-11. And um, I got to experience sexuality in New York City for 10 years, which was a fucking wild ride. (laughs) (laughs) That could be its own podcast, I think. It should be. (laughs) What did you discover then? Maybe giving yourself permission and willing to step into that world and including discovering about your own sexuality. Like, how did it shift then? Really giving yourself permission to explore. Well, I would say it, I mean, the the thing that I discovered was sex. That was the biggest aspect of my discovery then, which was, oh my God, I could have, I mean, this is pre-grinder and pre-tinder and pre-dinder and all of that stuff. But, um, so we still cruised at the time, which if a fellow audience, if, if you don't know what cruising is, it means like walking down the street and, and noticing someone, um, I would say sexually and, um, and looking for that in a way. And, um, you know, as gay people are cruising, we used to have a whole costume to do this in the thirties and forties. I don't know if you know that, but, um, we used to have different handkerchiefs in different pockets that would um, mean different things with what you're looking for. Uh, different colored socks would mean different things. And so the function of the costume was also around how do we meet up and have sex? Um, because the larger culture basically made that almost impossible or the consequence of that was prison, which I know people who have, have been arrested um, and their names published in the newspaper for being caught in a gay bar in the fifties. Um, so anyway, uh, we still cruised at the time nowadays. It's like fucking ordering in food, <laughs> but, uh, at the time we still did that. And my experience in New York in the, in the two thousands was very much about, uh, exploring my sexuality by having a lot of sex. And, um, and it was because for the most part I did, I, I wasn't having sex in my teenage years. And that was the part of me that was, you know, teenagers just want their bunny rabbits, you know, they want to just fuck all the time. <laughs> and so if you contain that, which I did in my teenage years, when you let that out of the gate, it's like triple fold, you know? And so I was in New York, you know, gay, new gay young man in New York. So, um, my exploration was purely sexually and I was working in the theater. And so, um, I got to experience myself in that way. Um, the, the part that is challenging in these later years is coming off of that because that was such a, uh, um, a way of trying to understand who I was sexually that that became the frontal, that became the handshake, you know? Like, that's the way I would meet people is, oh, you're hot. And and as I get older, it's it's about stepping away from that and coming more into a recognition of, of, of relation, uh, so coming into relationships, you know? Who are you? Not what can I get from you uh, or what can I give you? And, um, and my work also is very, it's also a commitment to that as well. It's relational. Um, it's not, it's coming out of the objectification mindset and into the relational mindset. In the book, Iron John by Robert Bly, which have you read that actually? Yeah. Yeah. At one point he says that homosexuality was, was understood just simply as a 
like a variation on regular masculinity. Like it wasn't a different masculinity or it wasn't a different category of men. It was just a part of the regular expression of men. And so I feel like there's something in what, you know, what you've been sharing. Like what is, what is the insight that you feel that you're carrying now, you know, because of this, um, men can make, can work with flowers. (laughs) Men can play with beauty. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what I'm curious about now. Like, what is it about beauty and masculinity now or what's been stunted? Ian, let me ask you a question, not to dominate your podcast, mm-hmm. but um, why don't you wear makeup? We all look a little bit more, so we could look more beautiful with a little mascara or a little blush to not look so pale or some lipstick. Mm-hmm. Why don't you wear makeup? Mm. I have. I mean, regularly. Yeah. It's interesting. It's, I would say it's like a. I'm not saying I do. Yeah, yeah. But I know. It's, I, I really. But like, I think it's important to ask the question. I like your question. Yeah. yeah. I feel in some ways it's like off limits. You know, like it's a, it's like a inner conditioning around, oh, that's just not something that I have, quote, I'm allowed to access. And mm-hmm. so in a way, I almost like self police mm-hmm. myself from not doing it. You're not allowed by, because you can go to the market and buy it. And, and I'm, I, I would imagine that everyone that loves you is still going to love you. Maybe they'll love you even more if you wear makeup. Right. So it's this inner policing that the culture, there's a d- dominant narrative in the culture that has infiltrated your identity. And so you're doing the policing that the culture has asked you to do. Me too. I mean, I don't wear makeup all the time. I look beautiful without it. Uh, <laughs> but... I don't wear it either. I have my own police man inside of me. Um, but it's an important question to ask, you know, why you don't do that. Recently, um, I got quite a bit of bullying. It's funny. I'm, I'm not on Facebook anymore. Thank God. Um, but I do have to, I have to go on Facebook and Instagram, um, to market some of the merchandise that I sell. And, um, recently, um, I put out a video to market a calendar we put out and, um, it, I got bullied quite a bit by a lot of, um, I would say they didn't say they're straight. They didn't say they're, you know, um, cis, but I would imagine that they're probably heteronormative cis men, um, probably in the middle of America who really went to town on making fun of my feminine streak and specifically my hair because i have longer hair that is new for me i mean the last few years and um it's it 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 actually hurt i mean in in a way that felt like i was back in middle school hurt you know where i'm trying to just be myself and come out you know and and i barely have the reins on that you know because it's changing all the time. So uh, every day is, is uh, I'm accessing a new part of myself. Uh, and, and so there was this kind of schoolyard bullying that was happening. And so it hurt me. And, but the reflection that I got in that from other people and myself was come out even more, like come out even more, make it all gay. And so I thought to myself, okay, what specifically, that that is not COVID nineteen. That is not COVID nineteen. <laughs> Straight. <cold. laughs> um, specifically, that 
calendar, I made another video, kind of one of these like flip card index card videos where you don't talk and you just tell the story through the cards. And I made the, I called the calendar like, super gay, super fabulous, super nature, super art. like, And I let myself really be flamboyant in a way that I police in myself um, because probably lo- a lot of years of trauma and, and fear of being made fun of as a kid. And so I police it in myself. And so I just said, fuck it. I'm going to make this video and I'm going to just come out as gay and I made the music pretty gay and I just let, let it come out a little bit. And that video got like 30,000 views in, I say like three days and all of my calendars sold out. And so it was this strong response of people supporting that. And it felt so good. And it felt very much like a fuck you to the schoolyard mentality. Um, And also it really gave me a renewed permission to play more in the intersection of my art and my, and my sexuality. Cause I was keeping them very separate. It was like, I'm an artist who works with nature and that's that. And then on the side, I'm queer. And then it was this moment of like, oh, no, girl. (laughs) No, no, no. They're all the same. You know, like, yes, I am a gay, queer man who makes beautiful things, impermanent, beautiful things out of nature. And when they all come together, all of me shines forward. And all of me is then out into the world. And then what happens is so many more people get to see the the me and and it's this it's it's less separation and it's more unification and it's it's a beautiful kind of symbiotic relationship between me my art and my audience i'm getting this image that civilization itself seems to be predicated on compartmentalization that people are asked to be in these different roles and, you know, show up at the office and then, yeah. you know, their private time or that, you know, whatever it is. And it kind of like enforces separation. And yet there's something in what you're just describing as well, like the intersection of all of these pieces of you that makes you the beautiful mandala yeah. of day that you are. Yeah, exactly. And that's what the art, I mean, yes, period. <laughs> that's what my art's doing. That's what I'm attempting to do. You know, when I, make a piece of art, it's all interplay, it's all a relationship, it's conversation between many pieces trying to come together and make one expression. That's what's happening. The pine cones are talking to the berries, the berries are talking to the flowers, the flowers are talking to the bark, the bark's talking to the bone. And I'm talking to the bone. <laughs> I'm just kidding. And... um and they, they, it's a conversation. And my job as the artist is to listen and to help them get closer together in that conversation or move them further apart or give them space. They all are, have their own way of expressing themselves together and separately. And that's what I'm doing also as myself in the world is I'm coming, I'm bringing the many different parts of myself together temporarily for a, an expression. And some days it looks very butch Mm. and masculine. And some days it looks super queenie 
and femme, and some days it is a crock pot where they all get to simmer together and there's this new stew that's coming into the world. And I, some days I have never even tasted that. And I'm like, oh, that tastes good. I didn't even know that was possible. Mm. <laughs> you know. And so um, going back to what you were talking about, about the inner police of, mm. of masculinity, you know, I think that it's a very interesting thing to be alive today because there's so many different um, models of masculinity. Growing up, and I actually, I just wrote this in the new book. I just wrote a chapter on ritual because the whole book's about rituals. It's um, right now the working title is Ritualizing Change. So it's taking all of these different ways that we have change in our lives. Uh, you child leaves home for college, you have a miscarriage, you're, uh, you turn 50, you lose a job, you get a job, someone dies, someone's born, and we don't mark those moments. We just kind of go through them. And why do we need to mark them? What happens when we mark them? And so I just wrote this chapter about coming out of the closet mm. and rituals for coming out of the closet and why we need to mark those rituals and, and mark those moments. And I didn't have that as a kid. And I wrote about that in this chapter a little bit. You know, when I was growing up, and even, you know, if 20, 40, 50, 100 years before me, they really didn't have it. But for me, there was no gay people on television. Mm. There is no gay people in the movies. There was, there was one, I heard a rumor, one gay guy in my high school that everyone made fun of. And my family had no gay people in our constellation of friends and family. So I had no model. So I didn't even know what it was. You know, so I knew myself to be different, but I didn't even know what was going on. And so um, nowadays, there's it's such a different experience. I mean, you know, like RuPaul's Drag Race on Netflix, like Queer Eye on Netflix, like there's so many different models in in popular culture and mainstream culture, which is really asking us to reconsider these old roles of masculine and feminine. Um, but the, the funny thing is even with the old, even with these new models that are coming out, you still, I mean, let alone myself, you know, cause I think I've been given a gift being queer like it's a real gift. It's a real challenge, but if you if you can walk that road long enough, it turns into a real gift. Um but for many heterosexual men who wear the drag of masculine as if it is the uniform of their life and they don't know and they get the suddenly it's like a trance and then you think you are it. You forget you're wearing it. And so they become so twisted in the identity that they can't put it down because it's so threatening because who am I if I'm not this? You know, who the fuck am I? And so in some way, you have to practice changing costumes, taking it off for a day and putting on something new, girl. It's time, you know, stop wearing the same damn thing every day so that you can see what the other thing really is because you need opposites or paradoxes to really understand what the thing you think you are is. You need to feel the, it's like cold and hot, right? You need to feel hot to feel cold. You need to understand night to feel day. 
So you need to feel feminine to feel masculine. Well, I love this. It makes me think about the shift from this idea that these polarities are oppositional. Yeah. Because I think the threat for so many men to explore the other polarity, right, is that it's it's uncertain. It's what does this mean? It's the idea that somehow it's oppositional to their ability to be how they're performing masculinity. It's relational. It's informative. Mm-hmm. It's it's the way to learn the many colors and textures and flavors of it. It's not. It is not threatening it. It's the opposite. It's 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 um it, it's helping you understand it. So you know the opposition to that is the dominant culture's opposition to the the many different ways of understanding who we are. And you can say that that I mean you can say that that's from industry. You can say that that is from religion. You can say that's you know, financial, there's different ways, as you said, that the culture likes to put things into categories. It's more efficient. It's easier. Someone's born. I know if it's a boy, I buy something blue. Or if they're a kid and they're a girl, I buy them a doll. Like it makes things really efficient and easy and categorizational. And so you can just kind of like, kind of be on a, on a, um, a little bit checked out on and um and just get things and do things and buy things and wonder about things in a way that is uh doesn't require a lot from you and so that's the that's the what querying does is it stirs the pot and it makes things a lot harder to figure out thank god thank the gods you know because that is life. I mean, the rainbow, I mean, it's almost a joke that we, that we look at the rainbow on like the queer flag, that it's a rainbow where like the colors are like really distinct. Cause really, I mean, what it is, is they're all bleeding into each other. And there's a, a, there's an ombre effect with the colors. It's not this clear thing, you know? And I feel like when it comes to heterosexual men, um, they're so planted in their lane that they forgot that there's that there's that they can't really understand themselves unless they change lanes for a second. Is the terminology of masculine and feminine useful then anymore? Because I butt up against this a lot, you know, when I in other interviews as well. Because there's this tension that comes out, which is 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 all gender performative. As in, is there no, quote, such thing as men and women? Like, that's the kind of core axioms that end up being really up for grabs? I don't... I, what do I know? Well, I'm, okay. What's I, your take on it? My take is that... My take is I'm an artist. And my take is creative. And my take is imaginative. And my take is whimsy. So, you know... I'm sure plenty of people's jam is to is they love the definition of things. I like that too sometimes, but I sometimes like to throw it aside and have things just like have no definition and be completely androgynous or or hard to identify or you know I I am an advocate for for nuance. I like nuance. I like there to be. Um, a certain kind of of um, 
where you have to like really pay attention to something or someone to really like, oh, like, oh, I'm talking to you, but like, oh, five seconds ago, whatever you just said sounded very feminine. Oh, oh, but what you're saying right now sounds really masculine. Oh, okay. And like, there's different, there's different ways that people blossom in the moment. And, you know, that's my, that's my jam is to really listen to the, to how people are flowering in the moment and not to try and force them into a certain box um, permanently or into a certain category. You know, I, I want, to advocate, I'm pleading for your creativity. And of course that has to apply to the way that we see sexuality and gender is that we're being creative. And, you know, we're all guilty of that. It's not just straight men, by the way, that are guilty of overly staying in their lane. You know, there's many ways on the right and on the left that people over identify. And some of it is, is legit, and needs to happen to maintain some sense of of understanding of who they are and some of it is trauma and it's and it's this wound that you know we have to claim that i mean talk forget gender and sexuality for a second i mean i come from jews we do that all the time you know and and some of it is beautiful and it's it creates tradition and some of it is trauma because we've been tried to kill be be murdered so many times however we get there it's it's both ends it's a paradox you know thank god we have these lanes and leave it once in a while so that you can really come back to it it's that spiral thing i was talking about at the beginning you know it's good to know your center but it's good to leave your center it's good to get swirled a little bit in life. And Jesus Christ, we're getting swirled these days. So it's, so it, too much swirl, come back home. Too much home, go back out in the world. And play with the coming and the going. And masculinity is asking the same damn thing. Play with it. Come in it and leave it. Come back to it. Stay in it a while. Leave it. And find a rhythm and then change the rhythm. <laughs> I love that you brought it back to the spiral as well. Yeah. And how, you know, the times are deeply uncertain. And certainly with this COVID-19 spreading around the globe and uncertainty about what does that mean? What's going to happen? All the rest. And mm-hmm. there's something defiantly human about the willingness to make beauty Yeah, in the midst of it, in the midst of the yeah. storm. And I wonder if you could speak to that. Why is it important to make beauty? in the midst of, you know, whatever may in seduce us into fear or into isolation or the rest. Yeah. There's a lot to be said about this. Um, the, the term, a friend of mine uses the term, which I like a lot. She calls it the beauty way. Mm. And, um, I really like that terminology that it's a path. It's a way, um, kind of like what I was talking about before around conduct or approach. It is an approach. How you approach things can be beautiful. But that takes a lot of consideration and handwork and energy and also a lot of, I don't give a shit what you think is beautiful. I'm going to bring forth what I think is beautiful. And so um, it takes a lot of courage. Um, But why is it important these days is because fear brings a great sense of uh, carelessness 
in the world and function and predict and people are trying to get certain on things and so there's a there's often a time um, where beauty is considered frivolous in times of panic and upset and um, and the things that people are looking for like safety and regularity and conformity and um, all of these things and beauty is considered to be like well when things are good let's do the beauty thing but actually the wisdom is on its head you got to take that and put it on its head it's actually the times when we are in the most amount of danger and the times where things are the most uncertain and unpredictable that is the time for beauty why because as i said at the beginning with the museum analogy beauty courts spirit it's what brings life into the space again i can feel that just even saying it right now i can feel that as an emotion in my body you know something really um, that's almost breaking my heart just in saying it right now. Beauty brings life. So it is not, I think the, the confusion, and this happens because of the industry. We have confused beauty making and money making. And so we have this trouble of, uh, we have to somehow diffuse or unconfuse that these two things. Um, beauty is not just a thing to make money or to be entertained with, but it actually has a function, which is to court life and to feed life. It pushes and pulls at life or at spirit at the, with the muses. It's food um, is a great way of seeing it. And um, at times when we are the most anemic and, and rationed and scared, um, these are the times where we have to put out that food um, because it brings us back to what's really happening, which is life. We are alive right now. In the midst of a pandemic, you and I are sitting in my house having a conversation and we're trying to bring forth a beautiful conversation so that it feeds the listener. Hello. And and that's that is one of the many functions of beauty is that it can feed it can nourish with my work specifically um it also contends with the question around place and and nature um you know is a is place and is a park just something to walk through and experience is land just something to arrive in or own or do we have a responsibility to give back to it to feed it. And if so, what does land eat? What does place eat? What does the spirit of a place eat? And this is such a different conversation for a Western mind to have because we're so uh, objectifying and of things. But, you know, when it comes to it, in many indigenous cultures around the world, and including my own culture, which was once indigenous, we would feed beauty. We would make something beautiful. And the, the, as I said, the jewel of my work is that it's impermanent, which is you make something and girl, it does not need to last. So it's not about making something and trying to make it last. It's trying, it's making something and giving it. And then you know, it's good, like a good meal when it's eaten. When that plate is clear and doesn't last anymore, that's a sign of a good meal, right? when you make something and everyone eats it. So beauty has that quality too. When it's, when it's well, when it's received in my work, at least it doesn't last. 
it's taken. And I would say right now, you know, in the midst of a lot of this anxiety, which I myself am experiencing um, because of so much change, we can mark these moments with beauty and beauty and ritual. And just one more point about this, and I'll be writing this quite a bit in my in the new book, but the etymology of ritual is very interesting. And it actually means to count, or even a more of a poetic way of saying it, is it means to count rhythm. So like a dancer counts. You know, I used to work in the theater, and so a lot of the choreographers would say a five, six, seven, eight, or one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And they would count before so that the dancer could find their way back in the music. And so that's what ritual is doing. It's fi- it's helping us find our way back in the music again, into the rhythm that's already there. And beauty is also a part of that jam. Beauty and ritual help us find our way back into the rhythm of life. And so this new book is really, in some ways, I'm committing myself to identifying certain things that we are all going through, you know, like, like coming out of the closet or turning 50 or falling in love for the first time or having sex for the first time. These experiences that we all have, um, we just do them, but we don't mark them. And so it's hard to see them woven into that fabric of life. And so we get lost in that. And so the marking of these moments let us find our way back in and realize that we are a part of this much bigger world. Um, We're a part of a much longer legacy. We have these incredible responsibilities and obligations as being a human being. And one of the most important torches and mantles that we carry for for thousands and thousands of years is as beauty makers. And, uh, you know, if you look back, whether it's architecture or clothing or beadwork or uh, land work or song or storytelling, you know, they're the ones that that last um, somehow and that are retold or reseen or are the beauty ones. And they have served their people at that time and they've maybe served the spirit at that time and maybe they're still serving us right now. Um, and so the, then the question becomes, okay, in these unpredictable times that we're in, very unpredictable, what beauty are you making right now with your life? You know, I mean, it's and it's very hard to do when you wake up and you realize people are sick and dying and your work is gone and you don't know where you're going to go or, you know, all of these things, like in the midst of the unpredictable and the uncertain, making beauty. Wow. Okay. Well, and how does that impact the beauty actually made? So instead of the actual beauty and the art being frivolous or, or kind of like, some weird psychological like reflection of something or some, you know, something that's really disconnected. How can you make it incredibly urgent and relevant to the time and place that we're in, in the same way that Nina Simone said, you know, art has to reflect the time. It has to. And good art does that. And good beauty does that. And, you know, my art specifically 
uh, is reflecting our need to get back to nature, to get back to ritual, and to get back to an understanding of the ephemerality of things. And what that does is immediately brings us back into uh, appreciation for what we have right now and not to take it for granted. <laughs> Girl! <laughs> Beautiful. For those wondering on how to approach beauty making, uh, your book, uh, your first book, Morning Altars, is a stunning array of both examples of your work as well as, I mean, as best as you've managed to, to craft a, a, not a script in to how to do it, but, but really like a mentorship, I feel, for how to make beauty in this way. There's different layers to read the book. I mean, you can read, you can just flip through it and see the beauty. You can read the book as a seven step guide as to how to do it. But also the deeper layer, and I like these layers is, um, I'm contending with a lot of the, the, um, poverties and struggles of our culture in the book. And so, you know, why do we have, why is it important to go out and wander? Well, because we're all addicted to destination. And to getting someplace. And so I go into the, a lot of these themes, as, uh, which many of us are struggling with. Um, and so the book is both a, a plea to get outside and to make things, and also it's a wondering about how it got to be this way. And where can they find that as Ooh. well as all of your other <laughs> wonderful merchandise? So you can go to my website, which is a palette of beauty. And I tried to make it as beautiful as possible. Um, morningalters.com. Um, morning, like this morning, and alters with an A, A-L-T-A-R-S. Although if you write morning like grief and alters with an E, you'll still get to the same place. Um, so you can, you can go there and explore. And we're about to drop this new short video, um, which you can see there. And that is a uh, all stop animation, stop motion animation. It's amazing. Thank you. Um, so that's very whimsical. And then, so you can get my book there and then also Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all of, all of the, um, normal book outlets. I love when people, um, either read my book and send comments or go out and make their own and send photos. So, um, if you're inspired by this work and you want to play with the place that you're in and make a little bit of sanity and in insane times, um, let me know how that works for you. Okay. I'm very grateful for our conversation today. Grateful to you. I can't wait to see what you're going to wear tomorrow. <laughs> you got mascara at home? Uh, I could probably borrow some. Come on, honey. <laughs> you got to do it. And he's going to post photos on this masculine podcast website. <laughs> Look out, people. It's a throwdown. <laughs> can't wait. Can't wait. Any last words for our listeners? Courage. Mm -hmm. Take courage right now. Um, you know, the etymology of that word is connected to the heart. So stay open-hearted and stay open-hearted with yourself and with your people and with your communities and with the place and, you know, feel the how close we are and then, you know, open again like a flower. Courage. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening to today's Mythic Masculine podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening, and leave a comment. And if you'd like to support future episodes, 
head over to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash ianmack. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash i-a-n-m-a-c-k to become an ongoing funder. Thank you.